Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Hey, thank you, praise team, worship team, Denny and Josh and Sarah. Great job leading us in worship today here. Hey, Ephesians chapter 6, put your finger there and then turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to read one verse in both places, so just hold your place there for just a moment. We're talking about spiritual warfare, we're talking about we don't know how to fight, we don't know who we're fighting, we, we fight the wrong things all the time, and so we've, we've went through that in this four-part series, we've talked about who the real enemy is, and last week we talked about gearing up and getting ready for battle, and then this passage concludes with two things that are vitally important to the Christian life. And so this is where the rubber meets the road the next two weeks. These are two things that we hear. It's one of those things, we, these things we know we ought to do. We know we should be doing it, but almost nobody is. My wife and I, Josh and Michaela, uh, we sat down at my house last night late, and every now and then we sit down and eat dinner, and we watch um, one of those um, uh, murder mystery Dateline NBC. Anybody ever watch Dateline NBC? Anybody ever watch that? No, not many of you. All right. So last night was a two-hour episode. We sat down and watched together, fast-forwarding through commercials. And it was a um, man in Texas. Man, I'm going to tell you, this is the homeless-looking guy you've ever seen. Nothing, nothing, nothing personal. But, uh, I mean, he, he ever bit looked like a Tennessee fan. Man, he was as ugly. <laughs> That's mean. I shouldn't say that. I am so sorry. Like somebody told me, Tennessee won yesterday. Played their sales yesterday. That's awesome. And so... <laughs> Although one part did lose, but anyway, uh, uh, I mean, this guy's just, he, he looks like a, he, he may be related to you. I am so sorry. I don't mean to be ugly, but he just, they said on there, he's not very bright. That's what they said on there. He's not very bright. And uh, he, he was married to one woman and had two kids with her. And while he was married to her, he was having an affair with her best friend. Well, then he divorces his wife. And marries his best friend, her, I mean, marries his wife's best friend that he was having an affair with. And then he turns around and starts having an affair with his wife. Wherever Jerry Springer is, he blushed a little bit during this episode. And he wound up killing his ex-wife and framing his current wife for it. I was confused partway through the thing. And I, I see that story and I see how messed up. This world is. And then I see this article in GQ magazine. You know what GQ is. I know you read that magazine. And they said the Holy Bible is the most overrated book of all time. Written by the editors of GQ, they wrote an article called This Week, 21 Books You Don't Have to Read. One commentator called it a millennial book burning, a millennial digital book burning, where they said, don't read classics like Catcher in the Rye, Lord of the Rings, and the most overrated book of all time is the Bible. And the reason I told you that that 48-hour story up front is the one book that can fix the society we live in is the one book society 
pushes against. Here's what GQ said, I quote, The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. Those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times ill-intentional, end quote. I want to be honest, that's, that's the mentality of the world we live in, that the Bible is an overrated book. And listen, I could get an amen this morning. I hope you would amen me if you... Uh, um, if, you're, if you never amen, I hope you could say amen. If I say the Bible is the greatest book of all time, can I get an amen? amen? But what's the difference between someone who thinks the Bible is overrated and someone who says it's God's word but never opens it, uses it, or reads it? See, in effect, we would disagree with what GQ magazine says, but can we really fuss or get upset because we have this amazing book in our hands. We have this living, breathing word of God that we barely pay any attention to. And so far we've learned who our enemy is and how to gear up so he doesn't get us off track, but what about offense? Do we have anything in spiritual warfare that helps us push forward I want to submit to you this morning that when it comes to spiritual warfare, this book is your training manual. This book is what tells you how to get through life. This book is what explains to you how to survive this thing called life, how to survive spiritual warfare, how to survive the attacks of the enemy. And so this morning, I just want to preach a simple sermon called the B-I-B-L-E. So let's stand together, reading Ephesians chapter 6. Let's look at one verse, and then we'll flip over to Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now look at Hebrews chapter 4, and look at verse number 12. For the Word of God, the Bible, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Pearson piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Thank you. You may be seated. So let me walk you through these two verses quickly and make some observations. We've, we, we've, we've heard the sermons. We have our honor, armor on. We're aware of who our enemy is. We don't want to always be on the defensive. We need a training manual to help us get through the Christian life and Paul begins to talk about it in Ephesians 6, 17. Finally, he says, the soldier takes up the sword of the spirit. Some have said it's the only offensive weapon mentioned in this uh, battle against our enemy. And when he's talking about Ephesians 17, he's referring to the short sword used in close combat. They had a long sword that may be as long as five or six feet long, was incredibly heavy. But the Roman army was famous for a sharp, short sword that was one of the greatest military innovations of the day. The Roman army was called the short swords because of its use of the swords in winning battles. This small, incredibly sharp sword had helped the Roman army turn the tide of battle in recent years. 
And Paul comes along and he sees the short sword of the a guard who's chained next to him. And he said, the word of God, the Bible, is the Spirit's sword. That the Spirit makes the Word of God effective as we speak it and receive it. The Spirit gives the Word its penetrating power and its sharp edge. The, the Bible is the sword of the Spirit of God in our hands. And then that's all Paul says. But you can't hardly read Ephesians 6.17 unless you flip over and read Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. Because Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 is one of the most definitive verses in the Bible about what this short sword does. This sword of the Spirit does. The writer in Hebrews in verse number 12 jumps into his famous description of God's word that goes along with the Ephesian passage. And here's what he does in, in verse number 12. He calls it a, for the word of God is living. It is possessed of life. The words that I speak into you, they are spirit and they are life, Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63. It is alive and it will ruthlessly judge all that is dead. The word of God is the enemy of death. And for those who say the Bible is an outdated book, they couldn't be more wrong. It is a living book that is as practical today as it was the day it was written. Then he goes on to say it's living and powerful. We've been talking about the word power a lot in this sermon series. And when we get to uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, it's a different word for power. The word power there means energetic, active, effectual. There is nothing and no one beyond the reach of its energy or its activity. It is not dormant and inactive. It is active and working, energizing the heart of the believer. It is the word in the Greek, energeo, where we get our word energy from. And get this, I love this. I learned this today when I was studying my Bible and I went running in my wife to tell her this. It was the word that was used referring to medical treatment and the influence of medicine in your body. The word that's used for powerful, it was the word that was used to describe medicine when medicine worked and it was injected into your body and it began to work. This is the word that was used, energeo. It is a powerful, it is a healing book. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing, he says, meaning it goes right through to the soul and spirit of man. It penetrates where we cannot, even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. You can't get caught up in those words. It's not, it's not saying the word of God physically cuts you, but it cuts to the very core of your being. And he concludes verse 12 by saying this, that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That God's word is the perfect discerner, the perfect, here's the word in the Greek. The word discerner in the Greek is the word kritkos. It's where we get the word critical from. It analyzes the facts perfectly. It analyzes our motives perfectly. It analyzes our intentions, our belief. Discerner, the thoughts and intents of the cardia. Hey, you know that we can do the right thing for the wrong reason? 
We, we can do a right activity, but do it for the wrong reason, and the Bible is able. See, I, I can't tell that. But the Bible's able to cut all of that aside. So, that's what the Word of God is capable of. It's a powerful weapon for the gospel, and here's, here, here, let me just make three simple points about this training manual for spiritual warfare. Number one, here's what you need to do, and that's learn it. Learn it. Ephesians tells us something interesting. When it comes to spiritual warfare, the word of God, it says, is the sword of the spirit. It is not our sword. It is his. What does that mean? That means that if we take the Bible out of its sheath and put it into use, the Holy Spirit would take over from there. Uh, when I was originally trying to outline this sermon, I had point number one uh, was this. Uh, the sword is not meant for the sheath. That the sword is never meant to be put up and not used. The Bible is powerful all on its own. And so here, here's what Paul is trying to tell us. You have got to become familiar with the Bible so you can use it in your hour of need. Too many Christians leave their greatest weapon in the sheath and never put it to use at all. Listen, can I say this to you? I'm so glad you're here today. I'm so glad you're listening to me preach and listening to the Bible preach Sunday after Sunday is great. But can I say this? This church is your safe zone. This church is where you sharpen your sword. This church is where you get healed. This church is where you get the paddle plan. Let me just say, the majority of the war is when you leave this place. And without a doubt, you're going to need your sword. It doesn't do any good to have the Bible and not be putting it to use. It doesn't help to have all the resources of the Word of God at your disposal and not know it and not use it and not learn it and not study it. The power doesn't happen until you open his pages and dive in. You're not just going to learn the Bible through osmosis. I mean, I'm only going to read you so many verses a year. And there's so much depth to this book. You have to learn it yourself because just carrying it around is not going to make you a better Christian. I was, uh, I was in school. How many of you are finished with any kind of school and you're glad of it? Amen. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I got out of high school and I got out of college and then I got a master's degree and I'm done. And have people ask me all the time, well, are you going to go back and get a doctorate? No, no. I have no <laughs> intentions of it. Besides, I, I don't want to be called Dr. Joel. I preferred Master Joel any day of the week. So uh, <laughs> Master Joel has a better ring to it. It sounds like I'm commander of a ship. And so Master, I'm just going to stick right where I am. So, uh, but I was one of those kids, and listen, this is not any kind of, it's just, this is, this is bad what I'm going to say, but somebody might take it for bragging. I don't mean it that way at all, but I was just one of those kids. I didn't, I didn't have to study a whole lot. Just, I remembered stuff and and stuff came to me easily, and, and, and I know it pretty well. And uh, from about middle of my primary school on, I was a straight-A student, never made a B. But I didn't bring a lot of books home normally. I mean, I had to study some, but it wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot. I just got it. I got math. I got, I loved to read. I mean, it just all was there for me. And, and uh, so my parents never saw a lot of books, and, and so I just was able to get by. And uh, I was really good at a little bit at time management in high school. I'd do my homework, 
while the teacher was teaching the class, so I wouldn't have to go home with a whole lot of books and all that. And that worked great till I got my senior high school and I had straight A's. I hadn't even made close to a B really in high school. Had straight A's and I got in my final uh, uh, literature class. And I was in love with Sherry at this time in my life. And I was goofing off a little bit. And uh, it came time to pick the book that you had to write like your high school dissertation on. I mean, it was the big book. And everybody told me you need to show up early and, and uh, you need to make sure you get a book. And I'm like, I can write a paper on any book he gives me. So I stumbled in about 10 o'clock in the morning and, and to my professor, who's now passed away, and uh, uh, I said, hey, tell me what books you got to choose from. He said, we've only got one book left. I don't care. What is it? He said, it's Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. Has anybody ever owned a copy of Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner? I'm not asking if you read it because if you raise your hand, you lied. <laughs> let, let me tell you a little bit about a Absalom, Absalom. This is, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Listen to this. Absalom Absalom novel written by American writer William Faulkner, published in 1936. The principal narrative set in the 19th century Mississippi involves Thomas Sutpen, a poor white man from the mountains of West Virginia who rebels against his family and his alcoholic father, suffers a life-changing insult by a black servant, migrates to Haiti, becomes an overseer of a plantation, marries but learns that his wife and his son is of mixed race, and then moves back to the deep south in 1833 to transcend his lowly origins by establishing and maintaining his own slave-driven empire called Sutpen's Hundred. By the novel's end, his plantation is in ruins and his only living heir is a mentally deficient great-grandson and it is a treatise against slavery. Now, let me tell you what Encyclopedia Britannica says. The novel was criticized by contemporary critics for its difficulty, turgid style, composed of excessively long sentences. Some of the longest sentences in literature history. Sentence, there are sentences that go on for pages. One sentence. Still I quote, and it's convoluted, redundant narration offering uh, um, differing detail. The work can be so confusing, in fact, that a chronology of events, a genealogy of the characters, and a map of the fictional setting of the story had to be added as appendices. I'm 17 years old at the time. I opened up Absalom, Absalom. If you, don't, if you don't know anything about the book, it's written from the standpoint of different people in different eras with different opinions of what really happened. So they'll tell the same story, but with different facts. And just let me just say, when a sentence goes four pages, I'm out anyway, right? Like I'm done. Wouldn't have the internet back then, kids. There was no way to cheat. You say, are you advocating cheating? If Absalom, Absalom is your book for history, cheat all you want. <laughs> you have the preacher's permission. I will talk to God about it when we get to heaven together. <laughs> I bought Absalom, Absalom. I tried to read the first chapter. I did not understand a word it said. And so you know what I did? I just, I carried around with me everywhere I went. I'd go to the bookstore at the mall and I'd say, hey, is there anything that had me read this book? And, and they'd look at me like, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'd go to the library and I'd say, is there anything that had me read this book? And she'd say, oh, honey, I am so sorry. <laughs> no. 
And I kept that book in my car, and I kept it in my book bag, and I kept it in my bed. And you know what I never actually did with the book? I never read it. I put together some kind of paper. I turned it into my professor, and he, it was, he let me redo it. It was the first failing grade I'd ever gotten in my life. And you know what his first sentence was on, in red? You have not read the book. I'm afraid God looks at some of us from heaven sometimes and he says, look, I know you're carrying it to church. I know you've got it on your phone. I know you've got it on your iPad. I know you've got one by your bed. I know you've got one in your vehicle. But, hey, if I'm grading your life, here's what I'm going to say to you. You have not read the book. Hey, can I say there's not a book in here. There, there, look, look, Leviticus is easy, fun, dynamic reading compared to Absalom, Absalom. There's not a book in here you can't understand. There's not a book in here you read. And I know you've got it on you, but listen, we're keeping it in the sheath. And so here's what I want to encourage you today. Learn the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Have a plan. Listen, when do you read your Bible? How do you read your Bible? What do you do when you read your Bible? If you don't have a plan, you'll never learn this book. Never. You've got to train your manual. Number one, you've got to learn it. Number two, you've got to live it. I love those two words that are used about the Bible in Hebrews chapter 4, living and powerful. Alive and energetic. It's one thing to be alive. It's another thing to be alive and energetic. The central idea was that idea of carrying medicine, working in the body. The word of God is living. It is energetic medicine, speeding to the place of the problem and starting to work out and fix whatever issue you may have in life. Now get this, this word of God you have in your hand is medicine for your life. It is medicine that will soothe your soul. It is medicine that will help you win the battle. It is medicine that will fix whatever issue you have in your life. It is medicine that will make things right. It, will me it is medicine that will cure the cuts and the wounds of battle. The Bible has that power in your life. And listen, it will medicate what it saturates. But you have to live it out. To find it out. Don't miss this. If you miss everything, don't miss this. The Bible is not most effective when it's in your head. It's the most effective when it's in your heart. And expressed out in your daily living. And so I don't know what the, enemy, what the issue is the enemy has attacked you with and you find yourself on the battlefield of life and you have been wounded by the enemy. All I can say is that you need to dive into the word of God and start to live it out because it will medicate your life when it's put into action. It does no good to go to the doctor and get, and, and get a bottle of medicine but never take it. And what we've done is went to a spiritual doctor and God has prescribed to us the word of God. We're not living it out. We're not just talking about learning it. We're talking about living it. It's one thing to know what it says. It's another thing to do it. You know, some of you heard about the accident this week on Southwest Airlines when the engine blew up, Flight 1380. The engine blew up and it sent shrapnel through the window and, 
and uh, eventually wind up killing a lady who was sitting next to the window. It, 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 and if you understand what happens at a plane, it's 30,000 feet in the air. There's all this pressure that has to be pushed out against the hull. And if you don't push pressure against the hull, the pressure being that high will collapse the plane. So they have to pressurize the inside of a cabin. Well, the problem is any small hole causes all that pressure to be blown outside the plane. So it can be an immediately tragic event if a cabin depressurizes at 30, 35,000 feet. And so when that window uh, was blown out, the cabin began to depressurize. And from that one hole, all the pressure in the cabin would go through that hole. You say, well, why don't they just uh, not pressurize it when they get a hole? Because you can't breathe at 30,000 feet. There's not enough oxygen up there to do it. So when a cabin depressurizes and that poor lady, bless her heart, it sucked her halfway through the uh, plane at 30, uh, window at 30, they grabbed her and eventually pulled her back in. And some man put his body against the window to try to keep some of that suction from going out. But what immediately happens when a, a cabin depressurizes is mask, oxygen mask, fall from the ceiling and you're supposed to put those on. And listen, every single time without fail when you get on a plane, every time, a flight attendant explains all of that to you. And I fly all the time, and, and she tells you, here's how you do it. She demonstrates, if she doesn't do it live, there's a video in front of you on longer flights. And she explains how to put it on, she play, where to put it, and she says the bag's not going to inflate, oxygen's still getting through. And none of us pay her any attention whatsoever. And so this week, the plane depressurized at 30,000 feet. And... Uh, mask dropped and it's essential to get the mask on immediately as a matter of fact it's so essential they say before you help your child get your mask on first because if you don't get your mask on first you could pass out before you have a chance to help your child so you got to put it on first and they tell you how to do it and everything but look at this photo this week everybody on the plane in that photo has their mask on incorrectly it is supposed to go over your nose and your mouth when you put it on to get the oxygen that you need. And I read this article. Somebody said, hey, all y'all got your mask on wrong. You can take it down. And I thought about that. That's the Christian life. Sometimes we get into the word and we hear the words and we read the Bible as if it doesn't apply to us. Listen, when the Bible is giving wisdom for living, it is giving it to you. That's why when the word says seek counsel, seek counsel for your life. When the, when the proverb says talk less, it means be quiet. When it says get up and work hard, it means get up early and work hard. When it says avoid sin, you should avoid sin. When it says tithe, you ought to tithe. When it says reconcile with somebody that you're, you've been hurt by, reconcile with them. When it says forgive the way God forgave you, then forgive them. When it says let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, don't let it. Listen, I could go on and on and on, but the word of God is medicine to your soul if you take it. It's not enough to learn the Bible. You have to live the Bible. When was the last time you read the Word of God? When was the last time you heard a sermon and you said, I need to change the way I live? 
The Bible's not given for information. The Bible is given for transformation. You learn it so you can live it. And the third thing, and I'm finished. Number one, learn it. Number two, live it. Number three, let it. And what does that mean, preacher? Well, Hebrews 4.12 said, it carves up your thoughts, your intentions, your plans, your innermost being. That the word of God will work its way into your soul in a way that nothing else or no one else can do. And look, here's the truth. If you hear the word expose or expose, you know what we tend to think? Oh, that's bad. But with the Bible, that's not bad. What, what Paul is telling us, I think Paul in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, is that the Bible is an expose of your soul. It is sharper. I love the word sharper. It means a single cut instead of a hacking cut. The word that was used is differentiated that way. It means with surgical precision, you can cut something out. You don't hack it out. That's how sharp it is. It is piercing, meaning it reaches through. It is a discerner, a critical assessor. The thoughts and intents and deliberations, the Bible can reach right through you and slice and dice up your life and living and thinking and intentions and your heart. Now, that's not a pleasant process, but look at me. Let it happen. Once the word has done its work, you'll be a better person on the other side of it. Hey, close your Bibles and I'll be, I'll be finished. The other day I went for a checkup, which I do every six months. And uh, everything's fine. I just need to get some medicine renewed. And uh, he said, well, we're going to have to draw blood. I'm just not a huge fan of that. Is anybody else not a huge fan of that? Like, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fairly tough guy. I just don't do well with blood running out of my veins. I donated blood one time and uh, got woozy enough. They had to set me in a chair, leave me there for a little while, give me some juice and a cookie. I mean, I was probably just doing it for the cookie, but I felt a little woozy anyway. And, I just don't, and so here's what I do. Dr. Smith said, hey, we're going to have to draw some blood. And that's fine. Uh, I just, I, I don't want to watch. I mean, I don't love needles. And I wrote that sentence down, I don't love needles, and I thought, does anybody love needles? I hope nobody loves needles, but I don't love needles. I don't love seeing my blood uh, come out. But why do I do that? Why would I sit down and submit myself to something so unpleasant that I have to look away, that I get a little woozy watching it happen? Here's why. When they draw that blood, here's what that blood's going to do. They stick that needle in my arm. That blood is going to expose my health to my doctor. A few days after they draw that blood, I get an email that says, your, your, uh, your results are online. And I go online and I log into my document and I can see what all my results were. And right there, it was about four pages this time, is an expose of my physical health. All because I submitted to that process of letting them draw two vials of blood. And that's why I say point number three 
is let it. That's what the Bible does. If you stay connected to this word of God, it will expose your spiritual health. It will expose your relationship health. It will expose your emotional health. And it will give you a diagnosis to get back where you need to be. So stay with the word of God. Let it cut. Let it carve. Let it penetrate and do the work only it can do. Because can I tell you something? When you start reading your Bible, when you start studying your Bible, when you start uh, digging into your Bible, every now and then you're going you're gonna to look at your Bible and you're going to go, Ouch. But let it happen, and it'll change your life. Learn it, live it, and let it do its work. Would you stand with me with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's Word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.